Hello and welcome to today's episode of Let's Talk Robotics. I'm your host, Nikki Rousseau. I'm absolutely delighted to introduce you to my guest today, Dr. Amanda Caples, who's the lead scientist of Victoria. Amanda, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. Hi, Nikki. I'm really, really pleased to be here. So, Amanda, I've read about your career. You've had an absolutely amazing career. Um, take us through some of the highlights. So, Nikki, uh, I uh, decided to do science probably midway through my high school years, and um, and I didn't exactly know what I wanted to do until I, I read the handbook uh, of the science faculties at um, Victoria's universities, and uh, I, you know there were just so many different options that we could pursue. So. I decided to uh, ended up doing a, a science degree and majored in pharmacology. So uh, I was I've always been interested in in medicine. I uh, didn't really want to be a doctor, and so I thought pharmacology was a great way in which I could explore my interest and uh, and 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 have a really really great career. So. Uh, I completed uh, a PhD, so I, I'm, in fact, I'm the first in my family actually to go to uh, university, and it was never really in my grand plan <laughs> to do a PhD, but it's one of those things that I kind of fell into and really enjoyed doing. And then uh, I, I had one of those moments when I thought, well, actually, whilst I enjoyed doing research, didn't want to do that for the rest of my career. So I looked in the paper, which is what you did in those days when you were looking for a job. And um, there was uh, uh, an opportunity to work uh, as a clinical research associate with a local uh, subsidiary of an international pharmaceutical company. So I thought that was the best thing in the world because to, to be able to have a really terrific job here in Australia, but be connected to a European global player was just um, a match made in heaven for me. So, so I did that and worked in clinical research and then that led to a variety of other roles uh, and uh, in business development, licensing, and then uh, with the Victorian government really being interested in developing the biotech industry, I thought, well, I've got the industry experience. I've worked with uh, medical research institutes and universities in technology transfer. So I'll give public policy a go. <laughs> and uh, that's how I ended up uh, working in the Victorian government as the first director of biotech. And the whole purpose of that role was to develop the growth of the biotech industry. And, um, and that's how I sort of came to be where I am. So the first thing that uh, that I have to go back to is that you, you're you the first one in your family, did you say, to get a degree or a PhD? A degree, actually. So, yeah. so that's really interesting. You know, I've spoken to a lot of people that, you know, they've got their parents or engineers or they've got some sort of, um, footpath or someone that they're looking up to. So was this very daunting for you? What did your parents say about it? Were they going, go, Amanda? Have you got siblings? What happened to them? Yes. So my father was in the pharmaceutical industry. So he, so I suppose in a way he, uh, he was supportive definitely of, of me going to university. I suppose when I was 17, I didn't, I had no fear. <laughs> so so it, it seemed like a natural progression from school. Although having said that, I did take a gap year, which in those days was not usual. And, uh, and, and again, I had a blast because I got a job in a quality control laboratory in a, a, um, an organization, a manufacturing organization called Nicholas. And their products still exist today with AsproClear and Activite. And uh, so before I went to university, I did that year. And I thought that was really important. And I certainly, it's, it's not for everyone, but I do encourage people to take it just to have that break and to reflect on where they want to go. And for me, it really um, reconfirmed 
that I wanted to go on and do a degree. And um, so, yeah, anyway, back to your question. Uh, yeah, I didn't think about it, to be honest. And my parents were supportive, but I they didn't really understand, certainly when I went on to do a higher degree, what that was all about. <laughs> I've yeah. got to say. <laughs> So when you, you're sitting down at the dinner table and telling them what your PhD is, let me just tell you, I'm sitting in the same situation because my son is doing his PhD in organic organic chemistry and he tells me, and I think he can see when my eyes sort of start glazing over, he's lost his mother. So, <laughs> Look, it's quite an interesting thing, the gap year with children that you go, you know, for some kids it works, but as you say, there's a danger because if you... If you're already on a momentum and you're not a great student, you don't want to interrupt the momentum because there's always the the risk that you run that you suddenly you're earning money and you go, okay, well, I'm not carrying on with my education. Yes, exactly. And I think, and, and so, so that is always a risk. And and the way that it worked for me because, um, and I can remember it was in those days where we actually had to clock on and clock off and you had to line up for the cash that you got every week. <laughs> and and so my my first salary as a career, mind you, as in, yeah. in, in the gap year, was a grand total of $69 a week. And at that time, uh so typing pools exist. Uh, yeah. People would probably wouldn't remember them these days, but the typists were on a salary of eighty dollars a week, and that was because they were defined as having a skill, and and so it was just a really healthy reminder that developing a skill and having a qualification of some sort is really valuable, uh, not only because of the skills it gives you, but also the career opportunity. So it, it, for me, it kind of reinforced that, uh, um, you know, doing a qualification of some sort was the right thing to do and, and help drive me back to university. <laughs> you know, I, I do agree with you. And I, I think just in the skill, look, you know, whether you go and get a trade or whatever it is, because I think um, I was, I've raised my kids with, are you competent? Have, have you got skills? Can, can you make coffee? Can you make a bed? Can you make a meal from, you know, from start to finish that you can go, wow, this is impressive. It's, it's just skills. And, and more skills you have in life, um, more confidence you have and the easier it is to get along with people because you know you can do stuff you're useful yeah exactly so education gives you that base capability and then when I look back at the different roles that I've had over the years I've sought additional roles to build skills and so I think of skills as being something that we keep acquiring as we go and yeah. I'm, I'm I'm still learning new skills and uh, and and the value that I see uh, in the role that I'm currently doing is I can combine all the skills that I've learned during different roles that I've had in the different jobs that I've held in the different industries that I've held and that's something that you don't often think about, I think, or many people don't think about because it, uh, we, we think and we describe careers in terms of doctors, lawyers, bakers, electricians, mm. when in fact there is, if you've got a STEM-based degree, you can create your own path and you can start off being an electrician, but you can end up doing something really exciting in a, a whole different industry and in a whole different role, but you've got that base on which you can develop further skills. Yeah, really, really solid base. So if you reflect back on your career and things, are there, are there, do you think you made any mistakes? Is there anything you would do differently? Not necessarily a mistake, but a missed opportunity or something? Yeah, so I remember someone said to me once that you've got to take risks and if, if you want to, you know, really progress in uh, and, and have a, you know, really de develop your career and that when you take risks, you've got to recognise that sometimes uh, it doesn't go as well as you might otherwise expect. And, uh, and so from time to time, there have been... Uh, activities or projects that I've worked on that haven't quite hit the mark 
and uh, and that I think is normal. And uh, and one of the the key things that you need to do is to pick yourself up after those disappointments. And so, whether it's a grant that you've been un unsuccessful in getting, or if it is a a project that doesn't work out um, for no reason, uh, 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 nothing to do with you, but just the, the fact that it doesn't work for whatever reason, or sometimes when you really make a mistake, <laughs> that you go, that you learn from it. And, um, and what I found is uh, that after a little while, the, the period where you are in uh, in the doldrums decreases and and part of the skills that we all need to acquire during our, our life is to pick up pick ourselves up faster after we've had those disappointments and so uh, it doesn't happen very often but it has happened often enough that I've been able to recognize when it's happening and and then uh, call upon internal resilience to you know, to, to bring myself up faster, but also equally important to uh, talk it through with other people and be guided by them as to how they've dealt with difficult situations and how they've retrieved the situation, so to speak, for themselves. So, yeah, it's it's something that we all all have to deal with, I think. You know what, it's so, it's so valuable that you're discussing this because, you know, if if I looked at you and anyone else looks at you, they just see this this such hugely successful woman that they wouldn't even contemplate that you've had these experiences that you go, well, I've really, this has not gone well. And um, I think especially for younger women out there today, you know, in various organisations, whether it's universities or the corporate that's really good good advice that you go look everyone makes mistakes it's what you do from your mistake and I, I sort of look at a mistake it's just another way to not do something and and as you say everyone makes mistakes and, and things happen yeah that's right and, and I think part of what has helped me too was in, in my very first job in industry when I finished my PhD and I got the job with uh, the the local company and I remember on the first day, my boss gave me a book uh, and it was the, the regulatory book for, for the industry because um, the, the job that I was to do was, was clinical research. And, and he said, Amanda, I expect you to be an expert at this. So he allocated <laughs> the responsibility uh, to me. And he said, I don't care if you make a, a mistake don't make too many of them, <laughs> but that uh, what I do care about is that you don't learn from the mistake. And I suppose, you know, I, I couldn't think of uh, what of, of better advice to give someone starting their career than that. And that whole permission to, it's okay to not do something perfectly and, um, but, but to learn from it. And, and it's, I've carried that uh, throughout my career and uh, yeah it, it's it's something we don't talk often enough about and and we know that uh, particularly girls and women are uh, more risk averse uh, than men and therefore uh, providing confidence to women to have a go and uh, and to have tools to pick themselves up when things don't go right <laughs> is yeah. really really important. You know, it's so interesting. I was talking to Ruth Harrison, who's got a degree in um, aerospace, and she, she told me she didn't actually work in the industry for many years after she got a degree because she didn't think she was competent enough, whereas her male um, counterpart just went to in and, you know, like a completely different attitude that we have. And I do think this is a, a, a woman thing that... Um, we think we need to be perfect. You don't like, but you need a boss like yours that says to you, listen, you're going to make mistakes, but just learn from your mistakes. Yeah, that's right. Mm. So you've been uh, the lead scientist for Victoria since mid 2016. What does your job entail? Okay. So uh, I, I've had um, the good fortune to be able to uh, shape uh, my role. And so the way that I've gone about that is uh, to do 
four things. Uh, so first of all, to align and connect across government, business and the academy and the community. So really to identify opportunities where we can link those uh, four sectors together around specific opportunities and particularly economic opportunities, but social um, you know, around social uh, areas as well. And so a great example of that, that I'm currently uh, working on is uh, with the Department of Transport around the development of next generation trams. And there was an announcement just recently about government uh, committing to purchase of those trams. And so I'm working with a rolling stock division to, to build um, innovation into the procurement of uh, new rolling stock. So it's about joining the dots across government and, and the uh, academy and the business community. So, so that's, that's the area that I uh, probably spend about 30 to 40% of my time. And then uh, the second thing that I that I look at are the over the horizon technologies. So we're currently working with Victoria's quantum technology community to build a community of practice around quantum technologies. We're starting off with uh, quantum computing and uh, keen then to explore quantum sensing. And this is a whole new technological field that is not ready for the market today, but for the market tomorrow. And so it's about how do we marshal the, the thought leaders in this area such that when the time is right for these technologies to be deployed, we're not starting from ground zero. We, we've got uh, capability capability in our economy. I've been um, looking at, um, you know, and, and I'm an advocate to describe the uh, importance of science, technology and innovation uh, to the Victorian economy and happy to pick, uh, pick up again on that. And then finally, uh, it's and particularly for this year, but throughout uh, the past four years, supporting and, and encouraging everyone to, uh, to consider uh, STEM subjects and become STEM capable. But particularly this year, a major focus will be uh, targeting girls and women uh, to ensure that they have the opportunities like I've had the opportunity through my career, uh, which has been based on having a strong STEM background. So advocacy for women and girls in STEM will be a key priority for this year. Okay, so um, following from that, you you obviously can't push everything. So you, do you get you obviously get informed of everything that's going on and you get drawn in and then you you connect people to each other. Is, is that a, a right sort of summary that I'm getting there? Yeah, so I, I join the dots. If, if I have a, an incoming uh, request, I think about is it is it my role or is it some, is, is the policy owner somewhere else in government? And then, uh, and then often it's not just one single group within government. So I build the team effectively and, uh, and I try to provide a shortcut for external people to find the right government, uh, uh, government officials that are interested or responsible for that uh, area. So it's, uh, sometimes I, I describe it as directing traffic. <laughs> I direct the incoming traffic. <laughs> You're doing an amazing job. So I like whatever you do. <laughs> so who do you report to? So it depends on, uh, on the area that I'm involved in. And so I sit, I, I used to be in, inside the public sector uh, 100%. In, in my current role, I sit a bit on the side uh, and that's to provide government with independent advice. And one of the areas that I provided independent advice and supported 
the department uh, over the past couple of years has been with the Victorian Gas Program. Mm -hmm. uh, the government, the, the Premier was wanting someone to independently sit with the uh, geoscientists who are responsible for delivery of that program and provide government with, with advice that was not, um, that, yeah, that um, was separate to the main business of government. So, so there the responsible minister was Jacqueline Syme mm -hmm. uh, and she continues to be the minister for resources. She's now the attorney general. So she was the, the minister and, um, and obviously that was a cabinet level uh, decision at the end of the day. And then on other areas, so when, when I work with transport, I'm on the Rail Industry Development Advisory uh, Committee, and that's a ministerial committee uh, of uh, Minister Carroll. I work closely with Minister Pulford on the Women and Girls in STEM map and also medical research. So given my background is in biotechnology and medical research, that's an area that falls within her portfolio responsibilities. So, so uh, in, in effect, uh, I, I work for her in, in those areas uh, and then uh, an exciting area that I've uh, also been working in over the past couple of years has been in space industries. So yes. with the federal government announcing and establishing the Australian Space Agency, uh, I've been coordinating the Victorian government response and we hope to have something out sometime soon and uh, and that fits in with Minister Pakula's area so so yeah I'm very fortunate in that I've got uh, a variety of different people both at a ministerial level and then in a department level there are a number of different clients if you like that I report to in order to uh, progress the work that I'm doing. It, it sounds fascinating. How do you manage your time with each? Is there any, ever any conflict with them that someone's pushing on your time or do you just, like, you just work 16 hours a day? Don't tell me you do, please. But <laughs> One of the things that um, my team, and I've got a very small team, and so, uh, uh, so, so we need to be very efficient and effective in what we do. And uh, one of the... Uh, one of the four success factors is being able to plan, which doesn't mean planning down to the nth degree, but just having something against which when you have to make choices, because we all have to make cho choices about uh, how we spend our time, um, that choice is informed by the bigger picture and what are the priorities and, and what, what actually is the urgency of this. So uh, I'm fortunate in that I haven't had too many occasions when there's been conflict of priorities, but having a plan really enables you to uh, make better choices, but uh, sometimes you don't get it right and, yeah. and you soon learn. <laughs> yeah. Look, I think the crucial word there is plan. You know, you know what you're doing. You four or five weeks and months in advance, you know what's happening on your on your to-do list board sort, sort of thing. So the very important report stimulating the science and research system creates jobs and investment was released in 2020 and it's a fascinating report. Can you can you tell us about it? Yes, so Nikki, uh, when the coronavirus pandemic hit last year and uh, we uh, started working from home at the end of March and I, I remember sitting actually where I'm sitting today <laughs> talking to you thinking, thinking past the pandemic and thinking towards the future and, uh, and the economic recovery because it was quite clear uh, at that time that uh, that no matter what happened, government, uh, you know, government has the responsibility to uh, to support the economy picking up post uh, pandemic. And it's fair to say that when I started in the public sector, we it was probably the best time to be in the public sector. We'd had a series of significant investments in science tech technology and innovation. And that uh, really 
kind of finished around 2010, 2012, and we'd been trying to to get budget bids up and, and to, you know, continue with that level of investment. But the thing is that uh, there are so many calls on government's budget that uh, other priorities uh, were more important. And so we, we hadn't been successful. And I thought, well, now's the opportunity to really make the case. And it's really important that we provide an evidence base to support uh, you know, any investment decision. It's sort of, you know, just something that you should do. It's really great discipline. So I was aware back in 2009, I had uh, undertaken a formal uh, evaluation of what I call the STI program. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to look at what, what did we get for our investment from that 10 year period and 10 years further on, so with a 20 year backward look, just step back and see not only what we were able to directly measure from, from that program, but to look at what happened to the broader economy. Because one of the people who said to me, so we, we had arguments all the time and I won't disclose his name, and, and, he, and but he would say to me, so why, Amanda, should we invest further in innovation? What is innovation all about? And he said, don't tell me about specific projects. What I want to know is what's happening across the economy because what government is interested in really is about an uplift, you know, um, raise all boats with the investment. And it stuck with me. <laughs> and, uh, and so that's the story that I sought to tell because... Um, and, and that's the story that that uh, report tells. It, it shows not only the direct impact of the investments, but how the sector has grown more broadly. And, uh, and it's fair to say it makes a, quite a compelling uh, evidence base and, uh, and is underpinning some uh, recent budget announcements and commitments going forward. So, so I'm pleased to say it, it did the job and, uh, and now it's our job to make sure that whatever flows from that uh, has as great an impact as that decade of investment. Well, congratulations on the report. I'll actually put it in the show notes as well for our listeners so that it's easy for them to access. Now, an ongoing challenge that we face um, not just in Victoria, just generally, is the number of women in STEM. Um, uh, I, I see Professor Fulford has actually just released a roadmap of where to find these resources from primary school to, I think, even after university, is it, or up till then. Fascinating. I looked and I wanted, I hope every, every school is printing one and putting one up on every single classroom. That should just be compulsory, in my opinion. But... Um, What's what's been done besides that in Victoria to cultivate? It's a it's like a twofold question: Why are we struggling to keep women um, in the space, and and what are we doing to get them into the space? Yeah, well, in fact, Nikki, just uh, today, this morning, I went into the office and picked up the hard copies of the map. So uh, <laughs> that particular map uh, is is on my webpage, and I encourage your listeners to look on the webpage because there are hot links to the individual programs on the webpage. But we have printed off copies, and uh, and I'm happy to provide copies, hard copies of, of the map to schools and other organisations who have got a commitment to developing women and girls in, in STEM. So so there's a bit of an advertorial. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> so, um, and look, uh, the, the, the data is compelling. You know, as, uh, women currently make up 47% of, of, the, of Australia's workforce, but only about 16% of uh, women uh, have a STEM skill. And, and that's a problem because we expect most of the growth of the interesting jobs in the future will require a STEM, um, STEM capability, which doesn't mean that everyone has to be a scientist. And in fact, if you look at my background and my career tra trajectory, uh, I, I left the white coat behind um, many decades ago. So, uh, so science is just the start. Uh, it's not the end. It's not the destination necessarily for some people it is. 
And so uh, research has gone into why are girls not taking STEM uh, subjects? And a lot of it reflects um, biases, uh, both um, parents and community, as well as just this cultural conditioning. And we talked a bit uh, earlier about girls not necessarily always having the confidence to undertake these, these subjects. And so this is, of course, not new. And there are many people trying to do something about this, whether it's in lower socioeconomic groups or, you know, in, in whatever area. And so uh, in, in tackling this problem, we identified that one of the first problems is actually an information problem. So how can you uh, find easily all of the tools and resources that currently exist? Because what I found, this is a couple of years ago, I was bumping into people who didn't know that another organisation was doing something. It's like, so with, um, with your organisation around robotics, so how do people know that there is you know the work that of that you do and how can they leverage that work how can they connect with you and how can how can you help build each other's uh, impact mm -hmm. and so that's what led to uh, the development of this map which is just about making it easier for teachers for students for professional women to find the resources that already exist that uh, they can access and so it is categorised and primary, secondary, tertiary, and then for professional women. So that's the start. And uh, what uh, my office is seeking to do currently is to work with other government agencies. So we had a, a chat this week with the Melbourne Museum. So the Melbourne Museum uh, hosts science works as well as having a number of different uh, of, of other facilities. And, uh, and so uh, the, they recognise, like we recognise, that um, they've got the ability to not only influence young people, but also the parents and teachers and, and others. So, so we'll be joining forces with uh, the Melbourne Museum, with the Office for Women. Uh, so this, this year is special uh, for us here in Victoria, at least, because uh, at the end of March, uh, the Gender Equality Bill uh, comes into effect. So Victoria is the first state to actually have legislation that um, uh, impacts on public sector agencies. And so uh, that, that bill is worth taking a look at because it, it puts obligations on uh, government agencies to have 50%, you know, aim to have 50% gender equality and, and do a range of different things that are all about uh, gender equality, but also, also diversity. And, uh, and so working with the Office for Women, working with the Academy of Science. So the Academy of Science has uh, established or, or has produced a decadal plan for to encourage girls and women in STEM. So we'd like to work with the Academy of Science. There's an Australian STEM ambassador, Lisa Harvey-Smith. So we'd like to work with her. So again, it's about joining the dots across Victorian government, the, the stakeholders in the community that also share our passion, and then working at a national level with others who uh, have a similar mission and uh, hoping that uh, together we can have greater impact. And what we need to do is just lift all boats. Mm. So both boys and girls becoming more STEM capable, but we know that there's a greater problem uh, with, with girls in terms of their participation and hence the additional effort that we're putting in uh, to encourage girls. It's very interesting. Like, um... You know, I, I was uh, in another life president of uh, squash and uh, racquetball Victoria, and um, Vic Sport actually brought in um, in Edith to say that if by I think it's twenty twenty, if your boards aren't forty percent, forty percent, twenty, so forty men, forty women, and twenty, the rest, what you hire, you want to divvy it up, you're going to lose your funding, and. Um, 
I'm very happy to say when I was president, our board was already about just about 50-50, but the sporting organisations out in Australia or certainly in Victoria were really, they were panicking because um, traditionally it was just male orientated and, you know, one, like one woman sitting there, whereas, you know, we, we made it our mission to actually go out and find competent women that, you know, you're not born a director, you know, like with anything, you can train people, you can coach them, but you want to get that succession plan of getting people on the board so that other women can go, well, that's been her journey. So you can do it yourself. Um, I'm really, I'm, I'm actually really happy to hear about the bull because I go, um, if that's the only way to do it, well, then that's how you're going to do it. Yeah, ex exactly. And I've got to say that initially I wasn't a great fan of quotas, uh, we, but we started uh, uh, doing it back in 2014. So, uh, so the government then had a commitment. This was before the legislation came in, uh, had been drafted and, and the like. And, um, and so for any government board that we were seeking uh, nominees for, we had to have 50-50. And do you know, in the first uh, month or so, month or two, it didn't take very long, we'd suddenly changed our thinking. <laughs> and I think, you know, to the point, to totally support the point that you're making, is initially you've got to put in a, a little bit more effort in thinking about who's out there and, um, and, and how do we bring them on. And, and after three months, we found it would just became normal behavior to, to look more broadly than the usual suspects. And so uh, I, I'm a convert to the appropriate use of quotas because it does uh, encourage behavior that uh, makes you go outside the usual boundaries to look for that diversity. And we know that the diversity is what it's all about just to get the different perspectives. Definitely, you know, and I think that I agree with you about the quote. I think I initially also, but but the 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 basis is that um, don't think because it's 50-50, you're just getting any woman in there. You're getting the best qualified, and they're highly, highly qualified women out there that won't necessarily put their hands up for whatever reason, thinking they're not good enough or they haven't got the experience. So once once this becomes normalized behavior, the quota system can fall out because it will just naturally happen that way. That's right. And it will feel odd being in a room of either all women or all men. Yes, <laughs> yeah, you, don't, you don't want a, woman, a room full of all women either. <laughs> we like the men there, half of them. <laughs> so do you know of companies um, in Victoria, Australia, that are, are doing these things well in keeping, in keeping women in, in the fields, in, in particularly in STEM? I think we're seeing a shift and, uh, and, and the one that most readily uh, springs to mind, there is a, a scientific instrument uh, company, uh, Agilent, and they're based out in uh, southeast of Melbourne. And, uh, and I've known their managing director for a number of years and he's always been uh, very passionate about uh, providing equal opportunity for, uh, uh, for women but also uh, for equal opportunity and, and supporting uh, uh, Indigenous uh, programs uh, because, of course, that's another area where uh, we need for equity reasons and for, and for other reasons as well because um, the Indigenous community uh, have a different way of accessing science and so that would be incredibly valuable to introduce to our way of thinking about science. So, um, or, or not our way, the sort of the, the more traditional European way of, of thinking about it. And so, so Agilent springs to mind as being uh, a standout uh, in, in that area. And um, they're not a company that would necessarily come readily to mind uh, because they just do it quietly. <laughs> and, uh, and I know, but having said that, a number of the manufacturing businesses uh, in the southeast uh, of Melbourne uh, have a, you know, a very strong ethic to, to increasing the participation of women. 
And their key challenge, I know, is, is finding uh, women with engineering degrees and, and the right qualifications. And so, so hence the work that you're doing, Nikki, I think is really important to introduce and, and excite girls and women around robotics because the other thing that we know and research shows us is that uh, girls more so than boys like to understand what does my job look like, what is it that I'm going to do and why, what impact is it going to have? And so there's nothing more visually appealing and uh, kinetically appealing than, than robotics. And so, uh, and we know that through the, the participation of girls in a variety of robotics uh, competitions. And uh, the more that we can do that, the more we're likely to generate the pipeline of, of girls who go on to do engineering. And, um, and, and I guess, you know, that's, that's what you do, which is um, yeah. really important. You know, I read, a, I read a report, Amanda, that said at the crucial age of about, I think, year five, six around there when girls are choosing their subjects, girls aren't they don't stand back for their abilities in maths and science it's not that it's where their friends go and because we're equally strong in humanities because we're women you know we, we're mothers we do these things without thinking and um I think that's where the crucial shift is that you go oh well I'm one or four in a group of 10 or 12 guys I okay now I'm going with my friends and I think again as you say education that's where the teachers really come in to go to girls and say look you can always have a career in humanities but STEM if you exclude subjects it closes the door for you and it is you know you can do it after school but it's really by that stage it's you've you've got so much to catch up on yeah, that's right. And, um, and so it's an and conversation. So how, how can you do the STEM subjects that are relevant to the general direction where you want to head, as well as the humanities? So uh, probably nothing makes me more cross when people sort of put STEM and humanities as you can only have one or the other. No. <laughs> and, uh, you, you've got to have both. Yeah. And, uh, and and that's why I think it is important that um, a student does enough science such that they don't need to do all the science subjects, but enough to give them that core capability that should they choose a career direction that requires another of the sciences, they're better placed to be able to do it. And what I'm thinking about there particularly is around, you know, subjects like physics, so physics was never my strong suit, I've got to say. Uh, and I probably would do better at physics now than I did back then. I just didn't have the conceptual framework, I think, is, is my reflection when I look back on, uh, you know, on my learning. What I discovered when I was at university and, and, and it was reinforced by uh, one of my supervisors is and they said that actually and and i did biological sciences they found that the best students for them were actually not necessarily those who had done biology but the physics or the math students because they brought a different lens to the problem that we were trying to solve in whatever the research question is and so i, I don't think we advise students well enough to say you can do both science and humanities. You don't need, you know, it, it's great if you can do biology, maths, uh, chemistry and physics. But as long as you do, and I don't know, I've not done research in, in the area, but I would say my guess would be that if you did two core science subjects, that it really does set you up for uh, undertaking the other sciences if that's where your passion and your purpose takes you. So that's how I would seek to explain uh, to students how to think about what subjects they, they undertake. So it's not, yeah. uh, you know, it's a, they can have the best of both worlds. Look, I, 
I um I, I didn't grow up obviously in Australia. My my schooling um experience, I'll, I'll speak from what I remember from my sons being at school and um the the teacher guiding career advice and things, you know. These these people are so important. Like and um I, I don't actually recall it being such a big deal at the schools. It's just fortunate that my son's gone in the direction he has. But I, I somehow even feel that um some of these subjects should just be compulsory. You don't actually have a choice. You know, in South Africa, you have to pass English and Afrikaans. So I actually happen to be an Afrikaans speaking South African, but I've got a dual background, English and Afrikaans. So the languages were never a problem for me, but it's compulsory. If you fail Afrikaans at school in South Africa, you don't pass the year. And um, that's just that's just the way it is. And my sister's an Afrikaans teacher, so she would baby all her students through year 12 to get them passed. And thankfully, she's managed it every year. But I'm thinking that these STEM subjects, that should just... I don't know, like maybe I'm out there just going, and I know it won't be a popular thing to go, you, you have to have two STEM subjects. You have to either have maths and biology or whatever, but you have to have it to year 12. And even if there's like a lower grade that you, you know, you don't, like there could be different levels of passing it, but you have to pass it and you have to take the subject. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I look, um, I'd support you in that, mm. <laughs> Nikki, and uh, just having, yeah, that it just goes back to having a core capability on which you can scaffold other learning and other skills and uh, and it's got to be relevant and and when you think of it maths is all around us so yeah. most certainly maths uh, I think there's a very strong case because from maths you can head off in any direction and it underpins you know you know whether you're an electrician a um, a plumber or uh, you know so trades or higher degrees or or just living you know yeah. you, you need maths you need maths and uh, and so yeah that that to me is an obvious core subject and um, well you, and we can make this your legacy you can enforce yeah, okay. it <laughs> I don't I, I don't know about your popularity no that doesn't matter they love you They'll go, we've done the right thing <laughs> so manufacturing automation robotics in Victoria how strong is the sector and and what's it contributing to our economy here yeah so manufacturing is has always been a strong suit uh, for Victoria and, and a lot of that reflects back to having the auto industry here and, and it has uh, enabled a great supply chain and uh, and it's broadened out and obviously uh, it, it has uh, transformed in in recent years but um, but there's still a substantial uh, body of work that is going on in manufacturing and we've been, a lot of work has gone into transforming the manufacturing uh, sector and the the recent uh, and well the current pandemic has also identified the need for sovereign capability you've got to be able to make things and you've got to have a degree of self-sufficiency in a number of different areas you can't possibly do everything but uh, and the ability to, to manufacture is definitely one of those. And, and I think that's almost beyond question now. And, and the question is actually, so, so what specifically? And um, part of what, um, so we see, and, and manufacturing roughly is about 10% of, of uh, the Victorian economy. And part of the reason why it's been substantial other than having the, the car industry here is, um, but probably a consequence of, of all that is that we've got uh, five very strong engineering schools uh, in our universities, as well as material science. And so I remember going down to Deakin in, in Geelong and the material capability that existed down there was very attractive to I can't remember now whether it was Ford or, or GMH. Mm. And it was a capability. And when you think of a company like that, they weren't interested in the capability just for Australia. It was about global. And so, and I remember one of the executives saying to me, 
he said, Amanda, there's nowhere else in the world that within one city we can access the capability that exists within Victoria's universities in materials uh, and in engineering more broadly. And so we've got this core capability in our academy that is available for research, that is producing students that can then be employees for companies. And, and so it, it grows uh, an entire sector. As you know, uh, manufacturing has uh, undergone transformation in terms of the uptake of digital technologies. And Swinburne, RMIT, Monash, Melbourne, Deakin, uh, all of those universities are really embracing uh, Industry 4.0 and, uh, and, and are uh, you know, really underpinning the next generation of robotics and, uh, and producing the graduates. We need the bright people who can identify what are the problems that need to be solved and develop solutions to address those problems. So, so I think we are in for some interesting, interesting times as the one of the uh, one of the the benefits of the digitalization of manufacturing is that it, it's also lowered the barrier to entry. And, and some of the capability, the, the machines that exist, when it was talking about additive manufacturing, there are, uh, the cost of those machines is decreasing. Mm. Some of the more uh, advanced machines are available in our universities. And certainly the universities are keen to engage with industry because you know, many businesses can't afford to buy their own machine because A, they don't have the capital and B, they don't have the use case for using it 100% of the time. And so having access to that capability is really important. And so we've been working with the universities and the business community more broadly on how can we unlock the front door of our universities such that the kit that they have uh, can be more readily available to industry. You know, I host the Melbourne Robotics Meetup Group, Amanda, and I, I I chat to a lot of people working in the industry. And I think one of the, the challenges we really face is for graduates to find internships, like the jobs out there, for, you know, so they, they're graduating. We do have these people, but they're not actually working in the industry. And, you know, probably weekly, I have someone contacting me and going, is there an internship available at my company, which I've obviously loved to do, but I'm just not big enough to support that sort of, um, you know, like that program anymore. And um, what do you, what do you think companies could do here to, is it a, is it an industry university getting some sort of, I don't know, program, pathway for people to go, you're going into these companies, even while you're doing your degree, you need to be interning and doing it. And then, you know, I don't know what the answer is. Yeah, I, I think the the bottom line is we don't have the perfect solution yet. And it's been an ongoing uh, problem. Some universities uh, have, uh, have as part of their degrees uh, work integrated learning. So RMIT and Swinburne spring to mind uh, as being the standouts there. But um, I'm aware of similar internship type programs at Monash and Melbourne and, and others. So I think that there is an awareness in our higher, higher education sector more broadly that the willingness to engage and uh, support students to have that um, experience and and of course there is and I should make a major plug for the APR intern program mm -hmm. so this is a program that uh, started off with the Australian Mathematical Sciences Institute AMSI and uh, they received a Commonwealth Government grant to uh, and it's targeting PhD students to enable them to uh, effectively undertake an internship in a company and it can be any company pretty much. So it could be, and I'm just picking names out, you know, it'd be, yeah. it could be Qantas or it could be Maya, you know, it yeah, could be anyone. Yeah, mm -hmm. anyway. And um, 
And uh, the PhD students, if I recall correctly, are paid uh, for their time and the, and the uh, government provides a 50% uh, subsidy for the, the cost of, um, of the, the students. So that's targeting PhD uh, students and is a good way of whilst those students are undertaking their higher degree to do it in an area that is more closely aligned to industry needs. So, so again, uh, you know, there's a need for those kinds of programs at an undergraduate uh, level as well as a postgraduate level. And do we have uh, the perfect system yet? No. And uh, is it something that I think is important totally? <laughs> and um, uh, and uh, most recently, the Victorian government, and and it was really only late last year, uh, set up a new entity within the Department of Education and Training called Apprentice, Apprenticeship Victoria, and uh, and they'll become more visible over the next year as they start uh, rolling out their programs, and and it's certainly about. How, how to provide young people with the work experience they need so that they're um, able to commence their careers in a, uh, yeah, in, in a better way than, than currently exists. Look, I think, you know, like, and that's fabulous because internships, um, yes, you, you're doing your work, but you're actually seeing how people conduct themselves at work. You know, I mean, like we, we're dealing with a different generation of people now that have basically grown up on phones, you know, and conversational skills, even that you want to go, because you put down your phone and actually you say good morning when you see someone, because when you're on text, you don't. It's just like this running dialogue of you don't actually every morning go good morning. You just pick up the thread where you left off yesterday and you know, I deal with youngsters and I look at them, they, they're very book smart, but, um, you know, like life skills and just, you know, things that that I think they should know just because I grew up in a different area, they don't necessarily know anymore. So it's actually vitally important that the kids come in, the youngsters, and they've, they've got a mentor in the company. They're not just there on internship, they've actually got a mentor in the company taking them through the ropes and saying, you know, by the end of your internship, I hope you would have learned like, these these sort of things that will stand you in good stead. Mm. And, and the other thing that I think experience within an organisation provides is uh, exposure to the different roles within a business or whatever organisation it is, because uh, there are people, there are so many roles that are invisible. Now, going back to we think of doctors, dentists and boilermakers or, you know, whatever it might be. But within any organisation, you need sales and marketing and you need product development and you need administration. Uh, and it sort of opens up, in, in, increases the search space for well, what do I want to do <laughs> for my yeah. career? And, yeah. And people don't talk necessarily about those roles, uh, um, you know, unless you know, um, you're in a family where people have those roles. But you know yeah. what I mean. Just having that range of different roles, and uh, and and I think yeah, understanding not only that they exist, but how they work together to deliver the company's mission and and products is important. Yeah, that could actually be for any degree you do because, you know, um, for instance, my son, my eldest son is a, is a qualified teacher. He did his whole teaching degree only to go and teach and absolutely hate it, you know, and I, I go like somewhere along the, your educational journey, this should have been a light bulb moment. Actually, I don't like this. And, you know, I've heard of other people that have gone like really good degree, like engineers, and they go, actually, I don't like this. Well, it's, you know, it speaks to our women that are, there are lots of qualified engineers out there and they're not there anymore for some reason. So, um, but that's a different conversation for a different, different day. <laughs> so for startup and entrepreneurs in Victoria, where are the best resources for help? Okay, so uh, I would strongly recommend uh, going to LaunchVic, looking mm -hmm. at the LaunchVic uh, website. So this was an initiative that we sort of launched uh, back in 2015. And, and the primary role, certainly uh, when we established it, was to create 
the infrastructure, if you like, the small I infrastructure, such that it was, um, I'm going to have to jump off in a minute, actually. That's fine. That's fine. Uh, that um, where um, entrepreneurs and people with an interest in a startup could get assistance. And, and they supported accelerators and, and other um, aggregators or, or centres which could help uh, startups get going, if you like, and, and learn the skills that they need to be uh, more successful. So, yes, LaunchBIC would be a good start. And they support accelerators and similar organisations across metropolitan Melbourne and also in regional Victoria. So for your regional Victoria uh, listeners, uh, so for those down in Geelong, runway down in Geelong is um, a good place to go. But more broadly, uh, there are facilities throughout regional Victoria where people can access that kind of Amanda, thank you so much for your time. We will have a follow-up podcast uh, in a couple of months' time, a few months' time, because I'm sure there's, I know there's lots more that we can talk about, but I'm mindful of your time. Thank you so much. I greatly appreciate it. Um, for anyone wanting to reach out to you, is it okay if I put your email address in the show notes? Sure, yes. All right. And um, again, much appreciate your time. I know you're super busy and have a wonderful weekend. And to our listeners, join me next week again. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks, Vicky. Have a great weekend. Thanks, you too. Cheers.